Well, good morning. Welcome to Great Exchange Covenant Church. I'm glad that uh, you've joined us here this morning. Uh, especially welcome to any of you who are brand new. Uh, and especially welcome to the moms who are here today on Mother's Day. Uh, now's about the time where in the service we would uh, do some kind of really gushy thing for moms. But I don't think all of them are here yet. So we'll wait till the end of service. If you're a mom, we will have our children be coming in with a special gift for you. In the meantime, if you are a mom, uh, we have these special seats set up just for you right up here at the front. No? No takers? Oh. Okay. Uh, well, you can go ahead and we'll, we'll make the late moms sit here, actually. Uh, okay, so uh, my name is Pastor Casey, and we do welcome you to Great Exchange Covenant Church. Thank you so much for joining us here uh, for worship this Sunday morning. There's so many other places that you could be. Um, you could be at breakfast with your mom, but you are here uh, worshiping God. And we thank you. We thank you for that. Uh, I do want to say something about Mother's Day. My mom is here today, uh, and I'm thankful for that because I love her very much. But whenever it gets to be Mother's Day, I always remember something that my mom told me. I was a teenager, and I had just uh, become a Christian and just started learning about my Bible and, and um, was learning about Jesus and His miracles. And my mom came to me one day, and she said, Casey, do you know what Jesus' first miracle was? And I thought this was a test. You know, she's testing my biblical knowledge. And I was like, yeah, I know what Jesus' first miracle was. It was in uh, the book of John. Jesus went to the, the wedding at Cana. And he, um, his mom asked him to turn some water into wine. And he didn't really want to, but he did. And so he turned water into wine. And that was his first miracle. And my mom said, nope, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. I, I know this. She said, no, uh, Jesus' first miracle was that at that wedding at Cana, he listened to his mother. And in that, my mom got me. Yeah. And so now that my wife and I have kids, we're learning about what kids say to their moms right before Mother's Day. Last night, we were in Santa Cruz at the beach, and we came back to our car, and it had been broken into. There was glass shattered all over the place, and there was blood all over the car, and uh, we had to go down to the police station. And we're teaching our son, Eugene, all about what a police officer does. He catches bad guys. And as we get into the car to leave, my son says to his mom, Mommy, police officers catch bad guys. Yes, he, they do. I'm a bad guy. <laughs> okay, and bad guys fight. You say, yeah, okay, bad guys fight. And he goes, Mommy, I'm a bad guy, and I'm going to fight with you. Like... Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so, anyway, we'll see how that works out later on today. Um, anyway, welcome this morning. Welcome uh, to GRX on Mother's Day. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm really glad that we're all here and glad we can look at the Word this morning together. Today we're beginning a new series, uh, a new sermon series, um, The Story of Our Church. It's uh, as we enter into this time of transition as a church, as uh, God has called our pastor on to, to another ministry and to, to do different things, and we are in this transition to a place where we're wondering, God, what exactly it is are you doing among us and what is it that you are leading us to? Um, what we thought was it would be a good time 
to kind of sit down together with one another and get back to some basics. Back to some really basic questions about what the church is. About who we are and what God has called us to do in the world. Some basic things about uh, our identity as a church. The mission that God has called us to. And what it means to be a community of people who seek to follow and worship God together. I mean, we have a, a mission statement as a church. Can you guys throw that slide up? Our mission? Here it comes. There it is. Kind of. All right. We're Okay, there it is. We have a mission statement as a church, and this is what our, our life and our ministries as a church is centered upon, what it revolves around. To connect multiracial and diverse people relationally to Jesus Christ and to each other, and to build them in love through the Gospel so that they can serve locally and globally. That's our mission as a church. It's the mission that God gave to Pastor Dave ten years ago. It's the mission that he set this church up with. It's the mission that we follow as we seek to do God's will in our community and in the world around us. But what does this exactly mean? And how do we accomplish that? What is it that we do to accomplish our mission in the world? In the next weeks and a couple of months, actually, we're going to be referring back to this quite often to try to kind of get us to the basics of our faith and to the basics of who we are as a church. And today especially, I'm going to be asking the question, of where does this come from? <laughs> like, this is a great statement, and I, I love it. Um, this statement is one of the main reasons I wanted to come and be a pastor at GRX. But where did we get it? What does it mean? And how do we accomplish it? That especially is what we're going to be looking at today, but also in the coming months as we explore these questions in the book of Acts. Because nowhere are these questions better addressed than in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have the founding of the church. You have the foundations of the church. You have uh, the time right after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and He leaves this mission with his, with his disciples to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. You have the foundations of the church as the disciples come together and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they begin what will eventually become called, uh, be called the church. Now, uh, the church's story effectively begins here in the book of Acts. And as a matter of fact, our story as a church, our story as Great Exchange Covenant Church begins here as well. Uh, 2,000 years later, the stories that we read in the book of Acts, these are stories of our predecessors in the faith. Uh, these are the stories of our ancestors who have gone before us. It's the story of the church that began way back then and continues today. We are in complete continuity with the church that we just began in the book of Acts. And that means that this is not just the story of the church, but it's, it's the story of our church. This is where we've come from. And when we know where we've come from, we can see clearer where we're going. <clears throat> and so we learn what the church is by seeking what it always has been. And that is exactly where we find the disciples in the text that we're going to be looking at today. 
If you have a Bible, could you open it up to Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it should be up there on the screen, and it is in your bulletins. But we're going to be reading Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. To them He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while He was staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for bringing us together. We pray that You open our eyes and our ears to hear what it is that You have to say to us today. And Father, I pray that as we look at Your Word and as we look at Your church, that You would show us exactly who it is we are as a church. And that we we would be able to follow Your mission and the power of Your Spirit in the world around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning we join the disciples and Jesus on a mountainside outside of Jerusalem. It had been about 40 days since Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, we remember this. It was just a couple weeks ago that we celebrated the resurrection of Christ. It hasn't quite been 40 days, but for them it had been about 40 days they had spent with Jesus since He had died and, and, and rose from the dead. Luke tells us that He had proved to them with many convincing proofs that He was actually alive. In the version that I read, it doesn't quite say it, but in the NIV, I think that it says that He ate with them. That's a pretty convincing proof that Jesus was alive because, I guess, because dead people don't eat. Remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead and Jesus called him out of the grave? And the first thing that the text tells us was, and He was hungry. <laughs> Jesus ate with them. He proved to them with many wondrous signs and proofs that He was actually alive after 40 days, and Luke says that he had given these proofs and that he had given instructions to them through the Spirit. 
It was this period of time where after this tumultuous moment in the disciples' lives and in Jesus' life, it was like the calm after the storm. I mean, they had had this whole fervor of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, being crowned basically as a king by the people, and within a week having everybody turn against Him. Being given over to the powers that be and uh, being crucified on a cross. The disciples completely deserting Him. And yet three days later, Jesus rising from the dead. I mean, all of that happened within the span of a week. And then all of a sudden, Jesus rises from the dead and He appears to the disciples. And everything is well. You have 40 days where He just hung out with them. Proved that He was alive. Spent time with them. It's like this, uh, this calm after the storm. They had ridden out this storm to come out on the other side. But today, uh, today was going to break the 40 days, I think. Today was going to be a little bit strange. Because the time had come for the next stage of God's story to come. Jesus had been with them for three plus years. He'd been training them. He had been amazing them, healing in front of them, casting out demons. He had been putting his word and his self into them. And he had always said that he couldn't stay with him. He had always said that he would have to return to the Father. And like a parent who takes off the training wheels and, uh, and, and lets go of the seat because his kid is, is ready to take the next step, Jesus is ready to let his disciples go into the world to entrust them with the spread of His Word to the world. And so they woke up early that morning and Jesus said, hey, we're going to take a hike. They walked out the door. They didn't know where they were going. But they began to walk up the side of the mountainside, the Mount of Olives. And as the name implies, they kept cutting through these, uh, these beautiful groves of olive trees. Interspersed within the olive trees, there were tombs all around because this mountain had been used for well over a thousand years as a graveyard. They didn't pay any attention to the tombs. After all, what power had death over any of them anymore? Jesus had risen from the dead. And instead, they concentrated on what a beautiful day that it was. A blue sky, a breeze on their necks, the sun shining down, the olive trees around them, and the wind in the branches. And I imagine what the conversation must have been like heading up that mountain. Oh man, this is going to be the next stage in the journey. This is going to be the next big thing. What is Jesus taking us up here to tell us? I mean, every time Jesus took them up on a mountain, something amazing happened. They were headed up the Mount of Olives this time, and you know, I wonder what they thought was going to happen. The text gives us a little bit of a clue. I mean, they say to Jesus, What's going to happen now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they, they still, after all this time, were thinking of it as a political reality. As Jesus, as a, a political figure. That Jesus, in the power of His resurrection, was going to rise up and drive out the Roman occupiers and was going to restore that land to God's people and that they would reign on earth in that political kingdom Forever. I, mean, I can't blame them. They had the secret weapon. <laughs> I mean, who can stand against you when you are standing next to 
a resurrected Son of God, nobody's going to fight you in that battle. It seems to me that the disciples probably felt like sky's the limit. We can do anything now. Jesus has conquered even death. But Jesus, He corrects their misconceptions. And looking over the landscape below, Jesus gives them instructions for their next and their only mission. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. But instead, wait for the gift that I've promised you. John baptized with water. Baptize you with the Spirit. And they're like, oh man, something big is going to happen here. And they get excited. They get excited because the Holy Spirit is going to come and they're going to get this political kingdom that they've waited for. And Jesus just tells them, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then... And then Jesus disappears. He just vanishes. That's it. He just disappears. You'll be My witnesses and now I'm leaving. What do you think that was like? What do you think that looked like? Have you ever thought about that when you read this text? What does it look like when Jesus rose into heaven? Somebody gave uh, our kids a DVD the other day. It was a, the story of Jesus. It was this whole computer animated thing. Uh, um, and when it got time for the, the ascension, I think that Jesus and all of His computer animated glory um, just stood there like this and like this. And He just rose directly straight up into heaven. And I was like, really? It's kind of, it's kind of boring. Whenever I think about it, I generally think in terms of Star Trek. You guys remember Star Trek? Uh, I, I think of Jesus standing there and some kind of light coming and sparkles and a little sound and somebody with a Scottish accent saying something. Um, no? Okay. Maybe Jesus just stood there and just like one second He's there and the next second He's gone. Like in one frame of a film, you have something present and the next frame it's just gone. I have no idea. I have no idea, but I can pretty much guarantee one thing. Whatever it was, however it happened, it was probably pretty strange. It was probably something that they did not expect. When they set out on that hike this mor that morning, they didn't expect to see their resurrected teacher disappear in front of them. Which is why... Uh, uh, which is why they're probably in awe. They're standing there with looking up into the sky with their mouths wide open, going, what was that? I mean, just a minute ago, we were talking about the world at our fingertips. Just a minute ago, we were talking about throwing off the Romans. Just a minute ago, we were talking about, man, who can stand against us now that death has been conquered? And now? What? What was that about? Without Him, how are we even supposed to fulfill that command to be His witnesses in the world? The truth is, if you're going to be a witness of Christ in the world, it would be a whole lot easier if you had Jesus actually standing next to you. I mean, if you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus and convince them, hey, uh, this is my friend Jesus. He rose from the dead. He was crucified, rose from the dead. Hey, just, just show Him. 
Jesus just goes like that, and people are like, hey, I'm convinced. But Jesus is gone. And I imagine that they were a little dumbfounded. I imagine that they understood, okay, this is our mission in the world to be His witnesses, but how in the world are we supposed to do that? How in the world is, does that happen? Especially when He's gone. Right here is where the story of the church begins. And it begins with Jesus' departure. And this morning, right now, this morning, is where the story of the church continues. It's with the story of the church continues. I mean, it's easy to observe the disciples on a hillside looking up in the air contemplating this Herculean task that Jesus had put before them. This task of representing Christ to the world. This task of being His physical representation on earth. This task of <coughs> doing for the world what Christ had done for them. But what about when we own up to the fact that the mission has not changed in 2,000 years? That the mission to the church, that the mission to God's people has remained exactly the same. That God has called us to be His witnesses Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Actually, we are the ends of the earth compared to where the disciples were. Where do we go from here? And just as they are our predecessors in the faith, they are our ancestors in the faith, we are the inheritors of that faith. We are the, children's, the children of that mandate. We are the inheritors of the story. We are the inheritors of this mission that Christ gave 2,000 years ago. We are the inheritors of the astonishment that He left this up to us. And we look up in the air and I'm wanting to see Jesus do some sort of intercession here. Think through this for a minute. This is what Jesus called us to. Jesus called us to be witnesses. Jesus called us to be the church. This is the visible expression of Christ and His faith here on earth. He called us to not just found the church, but to continue to be the church. To continue to, uh, to, to, continue to uh, put forth His message in word and deed throughout all of time until He returns. He called us to be vessels of His message to the world. And He says, you are going to do this. I don't know about you, but for me, that's quite a bit intimidating. Not only that, that's pretty hard. <laughs> it's pretty difficult to do that. Even if Jesus was standing next to us, even if Jesus was right here, the resurrected Christ, think about what you are up against, what the church is up against to be Christ's witnesses in the world. Think about what makes this mission and this witness difficult. Think for a second just about the culture that we live in. A culture that often, most times, doesn't want to hear a message about self-sacrifice. A message about giving yourself up for others. A culture that is based, has an economy that is completely based upon capitalism. A system that 
works well enough in these situations, but a system in which it seems not everybody is able to, uh, to get enough. Where everybody really is out for ourselves. Where the message is if we work as hard as we possibly can, we will get everything we possibly need. A culture that, doesn't, that believes that doesn't want to hear the message that we're going to look at in Acts about the believer sharing everything in common so that nobody would be in need. Maybe in theory, our culture likes to hear that. I don't see it really in practice. It's a culture that largely doesn't want to hear this message. A culture that is often anti-witness against our message. It's not just the culture around us. It's uh, it's the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Or it's our clumsiness in the words that we have or the words that we say or, or the actions that we partake in. On Friday night, we had a, a worship, a praise and worship night at the GRX Ministry Center. The only task that I had for the entire evening was to come up at the end and say a prayer. Well, I wanted to be, I wanted to say this prayer from St. Augustine because he says things much, much better than I could ever say them. But as I tried to say that St. Augustine was a great philosopher, I was told later on that what I said was, St. Augustine is a great falafel. I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty clumsy. I'm clumsy in my words quite often. And I'm clumsy in my actions. So many times where I know that uh, to take this course of action would be to be in integrity with my call as a witness to Christ's Gospel. But either through my own will or through my own clumsiness, I choose this path instead. I don't fulfill that mandate to be His witness in the world. Sometimes what stands in our way is fear. We, we have the words. We know what Jesus calls us to. We're ready to do it. And then for one reason or another, we hesitate. And we find ourselves in, in silence. We find ourselves in silence in the world around us, either with the actual gospel of Jesus Christ or how we express it in our actions. Again, we know, we know that to stand up for Christ is the right thing to do. And for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, we're fearful to do it. Oftentimes, the thing that stands in our way is our own selves. Sometimes we are just not the best witness, either personally or as a church. You ever notice how, like on uh, like CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, whenever they want to do a segment on religion, they generally get like the craziest pastor that they can possibly find in the country. And they put him up there for like five minutes to talk about the craziest thing that you can possibly think of. That's, well, that's the culture <laughs> working against us. But those who are within our church and, and ourselves, we're not always. We work against ourselves. We know we have this message to, to say, but for some reason we can't say it. And we do this as a church as well. In the Central Valley where I'm from, a little town called Ripon, little church, First Congregational Church of Ripon, and uh, the pastor of that church, 
proceeded to um, work in his own interest instead of the interest of being a witness for the gospel. It turns out what he did is he, uh, he forged documents and he sold the church building. He just went to a real estate agent and sold the building. Uh, he took all of the money and he put it in his bank account. He sold the, the church building and the church's parsonage. I put it all in his bank account. And then he went out and bought like an $80,000 BMW and was driving it around town. He was still working in the church as the pastor. Um, these crazy things. And of course he got caught. Went to jail. And uh, sometimes, sometimes the people in our churches, sometimes our churches themselves, are not the best witnesses for Christ. Christ calls us to do this, to, to be witnesses of Him in the world. Whatever reason, whether it's the culture that we live in or whether it's that we work against ourselves in this, our sinful natures, it's not that easy to do what He says to do. Especially when He's ascended into heaven and we're left here kind of on our own. For me, it has something to do with my voice. The difficulty here it has something to do with my voice because the fact is that my voice is not big enough to accomplish what you're asking me to do, God. My voice is not big enough to cut through the culture and the fear in myself. And I don't know exactly how to do it. I don't know how to talk loud enough or to say the right words in order to be your witness in the world. But that's what Jesus calls us to. To be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It makes me think that the church is a really, really funny place. I think Jesus founded it in a really funny way. You basically have the first string resurrected Son of God walk off the field and hand the ball to a group of misfits who just came off of probation. And as he does it, he's absolutely confident in what he's doing. It's kind of strange. But that's where the story begins. That's where the story continues. Christ leaves us with the command to witness. With the command to be the church. To be my witnesses. It would be easier if he was just here. Then, now, in the future. How in the world are we supposed to do this? How do we live out this mission? Well, the truth is that Jesus doesn't leave us quite alone. He ascends into heaven, but he doesn't leave us exactly alone. Let's go back to the story for a minute. Uh, you read through it, and, and there's no hint that Jesus is nervous whatsoever. Mission is clear, be my witnesses. Identity is clear. You will be the church, is what he's saying. And he is leaving the disciples with the responsibility and the mission of the church. And he even gives them a smile and a wink as he lifts off. I was paraphrasing that. And he can do that. He can be absolutely confident with that because within all of these speeches that he's giving them, within this 40 days of appearing to them, with all of these commands, he's tucked in a couple of promises. A couple of promises for the journey that they are about to embark on. Jesus gives the command to witness and He gives the disciples exactly what they need to accomplish that mandate. Two things in particular that I want to point out here in this story. 
the first thing that He gives them is the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is mentioned more than once in this text. You look at verses 4 and 5. Well, staying with Him, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then also again in verse 8. Um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The fact that Jesus is promising them the Holy Spirit is it's a huge deal. I mean, this is, this is massive that Jesus is saying these words right now. The fact is that in their experience, the disciples, uh, when, they, when they thought about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit was not something that came on everybody. Uh, the Spirit was not something that God just gave out to, to anyone. If you read through the Old Testament, you will see that it wasn't, it wasn't just any one of God's people that was given the Spirit of God. It came on to people like Saul, who was the king. David, who was the king who replaced Saul after the Spirit left Saul. It came on people like Elijah and Elisha, who were prophets of God. The Spirit was given to people who were incredibly, let's just say, important. He's saying that the Spirit is going to be poured out on everybody. On you as the disciples. In the next chapter, we're going to see that Peter quotes this, this prophecy that says, I will pour My Spirit out upon your sons and daughters and they will prophesy. They will go out into the world and they will be My witnesses in the world. Jesus is promising something incredibly profound here. That the Spirit would be given freely to all. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how you think of the Holy Spirit, but generally in the church, we don't often talk about the Spirit. The Spirit is, is God who gets forgotten. <laughs> it's usually Father, Son, and uh, who? But we have to remember that the Spirit is not merely the power of God, which some people say. The power that emanates from God. It's not that. The Spirit is God. In the Christian church, we talk about God as, as one God. One unit. One God. Not many gods. But one God that exists in three persons. Not three modes, but three persons. Existing in the person of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus goes away and He ascends into heaven and He promises the appearing of the Holy Spirit, He's not saying that God is leaving you and I'm going to give you this power. He's saying that I am leaving you and God is going to be with you. Jesus is God. Or the Spirit is God. So Jesus is, or Jesus is saying you will have power, you will receive power so that you can accomplish your mission. The Holy Spirit is God Himself who would indwell them to accomplish their mission as the church. And the second thing that God promises them, that Christ promises them, is the promise of Christ's kingdom. Look at verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. It's the promise that Christ will return and bring the kingdom. 
The promise that all of history is processing to one focused outcome. The promise that no matter what happens, the story has a happy ending. God does exactly what He says He will do and He will bring His kingdom to fulfillment on earth. They're given the power of the Holy Spirit. They're given the promise of the kingdom of God. This means that the Bible tells the story in five acts. It's a five-act play. It talks about creation, fall, Israel as God's people, the person of Jesus Christ, and then it talks about the church. And what Jesus is saying is that you guys fit into this fifth act. You guys are the church who will accomplish the completion of my story in the world. And as Jesus promises it, we have a certain amount of certainty that He will bring it to fruition. Christ's role on earth has been played and the story moves to the mission of the church representative of the risen Christ on earth. And they are given an assurance of what the end of that story looks like. Christ returns. The story is completed. And God's kingdom is fulfilled. This gives the disciples and it gives us a confidence and a hope in God's completed kingdom. Despite the obstacles, uncharted territory, their mess-ups, God is saying that this will work out. Don't stress. So Christ gives them the mission, be my witnesses, and He gives them the plan, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of the kingdom of God in the world. He begins the church's story of witness with the Spirit's power and with the kingdom's promise. So what about us? What about me and about you? About GRX? About this church right here today? What is our mission? How do we accomplish it? I think you know this by now. We're in the same story. Christ hasn't returned yet. The kingdom hasn't completed. The mission is the same. We are still in the middle of Act 5. The difference between us and Peter and John and the others is only a difference of time. 2,000 years and Christ's words echo as they did then. Be my witnesses to the end of the earth. This is our time. Can you put that mission slide up again? <clears throat> this is our time. The time that God calls us to be His witnesses. And we, we say this to connect multiracial and diverse people relationally to Jesus Christ and to each other and to build them in love through the Gospel so that they can serve locally and globally. And what I see there is that Christ is calling us to be His witnesses. It may have different wording, but it's the same. God continues the church's story in the power of the Spirit and in the promise of the Kingdom. Despite whatever obstacles or fear or inadequacies we face, because while we do it, we do not do it alone. He promises the Spirit. He promises the Kingdom. And God continues the church's story in the power of the Spirit and in the promise of His Kingdom. As we think about GRX today, this morning, and in the coming weeks, we see this mission statement. And what I want to say to you is that this is your mission. This is what you and I are called to be about. Centrally, to the exclusion of all other things, that we glorify God as we carry out the mission that He has given us. And we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the promise of the Kingdom of God before us. It's our mission 
As the church, it is our witness. Everything there has to do with witness and mission. It's our calling to be the church founded by Christ. And this mission is accomplished little by little, mile by mile. We see it happening. You see it happening in VBS when little kids who had never heard about Jesus before come and they learn about Jesus and they, they make Jesus their forever friend. You see it when you care so much about justice that you're not satisfied to see the homeless guy on the side of the street go hungry. And so you either help him personally or you join in with some kind of mission to work with the homeless and the disaffected in your community. You see this mission being played out when you go out of your way to connect with somebody who is of a different race than you. Even though it may be uncomfortable. We see this playing out, this mission, this witness in the world over and over again as God moves the story towards its conclusion. God continues the church's story in the power of the Spirit and in the promise of His kingdom. We're going to see it as we look at the book of Acts in the coming weeks. We're going to see it in our church as we identify what we're already doing and we come up with opportunities for new ways to live out this mission in our community and in our world. It's the way that the kingdom progresses in the power of God and in the promise of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we come to You this morning and we seek to glorify You in all that we do. We look at the, the command that You give us, that You give to Your church at its inception. The command that You give us through them as uh, inheritors of their faith. Father, You call us to be witnesses. And Father, You do not leave us alone. You indwell us with Your Holy Spirit. And You give us hope in the promise of Your Kingdom. And Father, as we seek to live out that mission in our place in this story, pray, Father, that, uh, pray, Father, that we would take Your command seriously. That You would drive that mission deep into our hearts. That we, would, uh, that we would seek to live it boldly with Your Spirit. And that You would give us confidence and hope that You are leading us in a story whose conclusion absolutely glorifies You. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. At this time, we'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive the Lord's offering. And Jerex, if I can ask you all to stand as we continue to worship for our Lord. <laughs>